0: Hello and welcome to Monocle24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's show, pack up, we're moving.
1: Talking about the technical benefits of being able to start from scratch and plan everything perfectly means that you're having to try and engineer that type of placemaking that just tends to happen in a more organic way in older places.
0: When should a nation consider moving its capital city? In this week's episode, we look at why leaders often flirt with the idea of changing a nation's capital and what it means if those plans actually go ahead. We take a look at Indonesia and its aims for a new centre of power, explore some of the world's mistaken capitals and try to imagine what urban elements are a must-have in a new one being built from scratch. That's all coming up right now on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. So welcome to this week's episode of The Urbanist. Let's start in Indonesia. The country is set to have a new capital if the ambitious plan by President Joko Widodo comes to fruition. But while there's an argument for leaving Jakarta, would a new seat of government be an improvement? Last year, we dispatched Monocle's James Chambers to the Indonesian capital, well, the one at least for now, to find out more about this ongoing story. And he joins me now to tell us all about it. James, welcome to The Urbanist. Let's start with something simple. What are the current problems with Jakarta that prompted the idea of a move?
2: I guess the problems for Jakarta go back to the very kind of beginning when the Dutch picked it as a site for a trading hub. Perhaps it wasn't the best choice, but uh, even back then they couldn't have foreseen it growing into the huge city that it has become today. You know, Some 30 million people live there. About 40% of the city is supposedly under sea level, and some of it is sinking as well. And they have all these problems with flooding every year because... Obviously, they get a lot of rainfall, but the flood defences and the drains and all the sewers get blocked by rubbish. So, you know, at this time of year, when it rains a lot, a lot of the city can be underwater. And as we saw over the kind of Christmas period, they had some very bad floods. So, for anybody who goes to Jakarta often you know it can be a bit of a lottery, especially getting from the airport you know i 've had personal experiences myself where it 's taken about three or four hours in a taxi, and you 'd be better off being in a boat because you could see the water level coming up to the windscreen so you know you can describe Jakarta as a failed city, and you can understand why the government is trying to look at uh,
0: alternatives so they 've looked around and they seem to have found a piece of land or, or a place where they could move to tell us why they have chosen this place and what the timetable is potentially for a move.
2: Yeah, so the idea of moving Jakarta has been around since independence in the mid 20th century and there's been various sites that have been suggested. This one in East Kalimantan which is the the southern bit of Borneo which uh, Indonesia controls. That was the the original suggestion back in the 60s and President Jokowi, the current president, has kind of gone and picked it again and so the idea is to move the capital or the administrative capital away from Jakarta so it's not moving the whole city you know Jakarta is not moving, they're not moving 30 million people they want to move the government outside of Jakarta into this new city and it's, I guess symbolically, it's located in the center of Indonesia or close to the center Indonesia is a vast, sprawling archipelago of 17,000 islands and Jakarta is very much to the west of the country and so in a very symbolic move Jokowi wants to move the capital to the center of the country and perhaps kind of spread the wealth spread the opportunity and bring the country together in the past Indonesia's had a lot of kind of problems with separatism in the east you know East Timor left and there's some riots in Papua that haven't gone away yet so in an attempt to kind of quell that separatism they want to kind of move the capital closer to the center of the country.
0: Now we've seen other countries do this exact same thing, famously, Brazil did it a long time ago when it it moved the capital to Brasilia in the heart of the country and it built a new city from scratch and it all sounds great and you of course have a more efficient government because you leave all the problems behind and start afresh but there they had the problem which is one is a bit of a boring place to be so people kind of flee at the weekends but two over time you begin to get the same problems that you've left behind you poor people come because they find work there shanty towns build up uh, informal housing stretches around the perimeter of the city So this isn't just a kind of an easy solution, is it? It does come with some potential problems. Yeah,
2: there's loads of different problems. As you said, plenty of countries have have moved their capitals, but a lot of them move it to places that are quite close by to the commercial centre. So whether it's Malaysia, they did it quite uh, close to Kuala Lumpur. But in terms of what Indonesia's planning to do, yes, the comparisons are to Brazil and moving the capital Brasilia to the middle of the Amazon. I think Indonesia is doing something that's almost as ambitious. But as you said, Brasilia has got problems. And for anybody who's actually seen that Oscar-nominated documentary, The Air of democracy. One of the issues with building this new capital in the middle of nowhere is actually the government is not so in touch with democracy. You know, it's away from the people and politicians can kind of get on with their business and not feel uh, quite as accountable. There's rumors in Indonesia that that's one of the reasons why Jokowi wants to move the uh, capital to East Kalimantan, because Indonesia has a lot of protests and every time there's a protest it can bring Jakarta to a halt and the government can't do their business but also from a commercial perspective you know Indonesia grinds to a halt so the idea of moving the government away from the people also brings its own problems for accountability there's also a lot of different issues you know environmental issues that uh, Indonesia will have to confront building a new city in the middle of rainforest one of the justifications for doing this is it's meant to be safer from earthquakes and flooding because that's one of the problems that afflicts Jakarta. But then you, c- you might be walking into new problems. Indonesia has big problems with the haze, so they do a lot of burning of rainforests every year to plant you know, palm oil trees. And those are the kinds of things that affect Singapore, but Jakarta uh, up to now has escaped it because of its geography and the winds and all that kind of stuff. But there's a question marks of whether the new capital would succumb to environmental dangers like that. Do you think it's going to happen? That's the million-dollar question. Jacobi's has proven in the past that he is Mr. Infrastructure. You know, He has built a lot of different roads and bridges, and he gets things done. Now, he very much wants to make this his legacy. So I do think something's going to happen. Uh, he's, got, he's just won his second term. He's got five years left. He needs to make this happen, or at least break ground and, and move a considerable amount of government to get the ball rolling so that the next guy can't row back on it. So everyone be looking at what he can achieve by 2024. And if he can get a consensus and political support from a broad section of Indonesia, because he is one man. He's not supported by a big party in the same way as we have in the UK or the US. He's got to get support from across the spectrum, from a lot of different parties. So it's just a matter of how effective he can be as a politician and how quickly he can raise the money because this is not just going to be money that the Indonesian government is going to kick up. It's going to be a lot of it or most of it's going to be funded by private financing.
0: Well, that was Monocle's James Chambers. Join us on the line with a few honking taxes as well from Hong Kong. Do you know the capital of South Africa? What about Turkey and Brazil? Often we make assumptions about where a country's capital is and what it's like, and they turn out to be dead wrong. So we enlisted the help of Monaco's resident pub quiz expert, Andrew Muller, to set us straight on some of these international brainbusters. Here he is.
3: <laughs> a capital city may well be the seat of a given country's government. It does not always follow, however, that the capital is the given country's biggest, best-known, most interesting or even most actually important city. Some, indeed, despite being the capital cities of reasonably important countries, have managed to remain relatively obscure. Everything that follows will be well known to setters of pub quizzes, who treasure these lost capitals as the kind of thing which can see a team of people who believe themselves friends sundered by bitter and lasting enmity, which is the kind of thing that the sort of vindictive sociopath who enjoys setting pub quizzes absolutely lives for. Istanbul is not the capital of Turkey. It was, back when it was called Constantinople and Turkey was thought of as the heart of the Ottoman Empire, but by the end of World War I, the big city on the Bosporus was occupied by Turkey's conquerors. The Republic needed a new capital and founded one in Ankara. Auckland is not the capital of New Zealand, though it was for a bit between 1841 and 1865 when it was superseded in that role by Wellington. Wellington's history goes back rather further. The Maori called the harbour on which it sits Te Whanganui Atara, which is much cooler than being named after the same English general as a weird steak dish and a boot. Geneva is not the capital of Switzerland and nor is Zurich. Bern is... Marrakech is not the capital of Morocco, and nor is Casablanca. Rabat is. Rabat's also a lot nicer than Marrakech or Casablanca. Rio de Janeiro is not the capital of Brazil. Brasilia is, and while it's very architecturally impressive and everything, loses points for joining that wretched cohort of capital cities which have named themselves after the country they're capital of. Seriously, make a goddamn effort. Toronto is not the capital of Canada. It wanted to be, but so did a bunch of other Canadian cities. In 1857, Queen Victoria chose Ottawa. This was almost certainly a carefully considered combination of domestic politics, i.e., stopping Toronto, Montreal, and Quebec City bitching about which should be capital, and strategic foresight, i.e., picking a capital and off puttingly long march from the border with the United States, which had taken a pop at Canada back in 1812. But it is vastly preferable to cleave to the delectable myth that Victoria chose Canada's capital by randomly jabbing a hatpin into a map. The Hague is not the capital of the Netherlands, even if it is where Parliament and the Supreme Court sit, among other institutions of government. The capital of the Netherlands is Amsterdam, where the King lives. And don't pretend you know his name, you're not fooling anybody, and use of phones results in instant disqualification. Sydney is not the capital of Australia. Indeed, people who make this common mistake are wrong twice, because before work began on Australia's actual capital, Canberra, in the 1920s, Australia's federal government was situated in Melbourne. Then there is the deeply weird case of South Africa. If you guess any of Cape Town, Johannesburg or Pretoria, you'll be right. And yet, kind of wrong. All three are sort of the capital, taking separation of executive, judiciary and parliament to an extraordinary extreme. South Africa isn't the only country which does this, but other countries with multiple capitals content themselves with two. All of which is to say nothing of the capitals of US states, which are an absolutely infuriating mix of the city you'd expect, cities you wouldn't, and cities that you can't imagine even people who live in the state in question ever having heard of. It is a scientific fact that nobody has ever been to Madison, Wisconsin. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Finally,
0: what would an ideal capital city look like? We decided to go back to the drawing board and go through what are some of the key elements from an urban planner's perspective that a new city should have. Is it tree-lined streets, more space for public gatherings, or perhaps as crucial as a good transit network? Well, to discuss this imaginary ideal capital, I was joined earlier in the studio by Fiona Sibley, who's an urban planning associate At the Building Design Partnership Urbanism Studio. Fiona is also a writer and a commentator on urban issues. God, she can have my job. Well, Fiona, welcome to The Urbanist. Tell us all about the building of a new city, or indeed a new capital city. What are the most pertinent points that come to your mind?
1: Well, first of all, there are real pros and cons to building a completely new place from scratch. On one hand, you can comprehensively plan that place. Now, cities are very complex organisational things where you need a lot of different elements and aspects to function. So, for instance... They're places to live, but they're also places to work and people need to be able to get around. And infrastructure is really the backbone of a city. And we're increasingly talking not just about infrastructure in terms of road and rail and transport, but also green infrastructure and blue infrastructure.
0: I guess one of the interesting things is when we've seen Chinese cities, for good or bad, you know, we have many questions about how their urbanism works. But one of the things they have done in new developments is often put in the whole network of you know, subway stations and things before they start building on top of it, which obviously yeah. is so, very expensive to do when you try and retrofit it into a, an old city like a, a Milan or a London.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that the kinds of things that you would think about getting in place first?
1: That's the real benefit, being able to put the infrastructure in in a new place rather than, as you say, try and retrofit it into a city where you don't have much space because it's working on a a medieval street pattern or all the layers of history and functions are already sort of where they've traditionally grown up. Certainly being able to try and build infrastructure before development comes along is the right way to build a big new development, whether it's a big city or even an urban extension. One of the big problems with that is actually funding, being able to fund in advance big pieces of infrastructure. And that's where a lot of new settlements that are being planned in and around the UK are really coming up against issues because the development industry only want to build the housing or the new Floor space for offices or commercial uses if they're well connected, but who's actually paying for the infrastructure improvements in the first place? Whereas in China, it's generally recognised, and in other countries in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world, that there is more investment available from public sources to actually put those big pieces of infrastructure in. China's obviously completely embarking on a huge mission to add so much infrastructure to the world globally, not only in in China, it's Self as a way to grow new development on top of that. So having the opportunity to put infrastructure in place first sets you up in a really great way.
0: And one of the things that comes with a, a passion for efficiency and for things working like clockwork can sometimes have a negative effect as well you know we often go to cities which are are touted as you know the most efficient cities or the most advanced technologically and you know they're smart cities etc etc and it turns out that the reason we love a city is because it's a bit bent and dusty and a bit of grit makes it sexier so is there also a risk of when you build a city from scratch that you end up with something that's a bit banal and too clean and squeaky for for our lives to unfold in interesting ways amongst the buildings and the infrastructure.
1: Absolutely. That's one of the most important parts of cities, that they're places that are appealing, that they act as magnets, that we want them to live. And one of the great strengths of lots of cities is their character and layers of identity and sense of history. And that has really been built up over time. So talking about the technical benefits of being able to start from scratch and plan everything perfectly means that you're at risk of losing out or you're having to try and engineer that type of placemaking that just tends to happen in a more organic way way in older places so that can really count against you when you're starting from scratch in a new place that that's something that you have to pay very careful attention to either through design strategies or trying to really exploit and work with the existing resources that are already there which might be natural or there may be some form of historic or heritage aspects to it and work with them to sort of endow your new place with some sense of character but we all have examples in our minds of places that have been built in a new way that don't feel like they're really bedded into the city. And I can think, for example, of Vauxhall, Nine Elms, and Battersea, which is becoming the new embassy quarter within London and is completely all been developed at the same rate and at the same time, and already feels that it doesn't, it's not knitting quite into the character and fabric of London very well yet. And as you said, can feel a bit soulless. So, what we really like about cities that are successful. Is they've got a bit more grit, and they've got a bit more character, and they have developed over time, which is what keeps people coming back to cities with those kind of layers, like London or New York.
0: One of the interesting things, I guess, about all the places that you think you really love, and placemaking is a is a complicated thing, but they have a vernacular. I don't mean that it's like you have to go to extremes you know, of design, but there's a feeling of place. So when you're starting from scratch, is it a bit difficult because you know you go through, I presume, the realities. You go through catalogues of brick facades and you're buying from the, the same people that everyone else around the world is buying from. How do you add a bit of vernacular, a bit of flavour into projects as you go along?
1: I think that is the most important and the most exciting creative challenge when we're placemaking and designing for new places. And it's done by the starting point being very much understanding what's unique about that particular place. Even if it's not previously been a city, it's more than likely it's been something. And really sort of understanding the nature and character of that particular piece of land or or indeed of that country or that city, you have to be able to add that understanding of vernacular, of local character and context into what you're proposing as a design strategy because otherwise, as you say, you can just end up specifying brick materials or new strategies and a lot of the time we're also being tasked with developing buildings which are meeting climate resilience and other sustainability challenges in new ways, and sometimes they've developed a style of their own, it really is very important to embed that in something vernacular in terms of character so that you're not going to end up with a generic solution that you you really wouldn't know whether you were in Asia or Latin America or Canada.
0: We're talking to you in the week when the World Economic Forum is taking place in Davos and one of the big conversations there of course is about the environment, about sustainability, which is a question for all of the people involved in this industry. If you were starting your city from scratch, is that the kind of thing that is an advantage? And what were the big things that you would do today if you were building a London or Paris again What would you put in place first?
1: Well, one interesting question is choosing your location because some locations are just inherently more sustainable than others. And to look at the bigger picture of the United States, for instance, that huge migration of jobs and livelihoods from what is now the Rust Belt of Detroit and Cleveland down to places like Phoenix, Arizona, which is the Sun Belt, populations of two plus million people in the desert, which rely very strongly on water being imported and air conditioning in order for people's lives to be comfortable, is obviously something that we might think of as quite a questionable strategy. And that's a question for all of the new places which perhaps the Middle East has seen grown up in the last 50 years. Are these places actually inherently sustainable in the first place? So I think choosing your location is one very important element of a sustainability strategy. We're obviously very aware of the risks and the threats from climate change, and one of those in particular being sea level rise. London has pretty well got some strong strategic flood defence mitigation. It's got a Thames barrier, but it's quite possible that we might have to revisit those strategic flood defences in the not too distant future and check to make sure that they're able to protect London, for instance, against the types of flood events that we might have. London's definitely a city that's grown up over centuries and we feel the benefit of that. But there are certain elements of it where sometimes the street patterns don't work very well for walkability or some of the interventions that were made in the 1960s by very keen highways planners have really sort of degraded some of the livability experiences of part of our city and that's common around the world. So a lot of our roles on urbanism projects in the UK these days are actually about trying to right some of the wrongs of sort of the 1960s kind of highway ideology. Even though the ideologies at that time were very progressive in loads of other ways, that really was the prevailing wisdom that we would be going everywhere by car. And nowadays, we're actually quite lucky that London is a city of narrower streets that make for a much more walkable grain. That means we can move back into a more walkable, sustainable city habit much more easily than some of the American cities, for instance, which developed at the time of the car and have very very wide roads.
0: So you'd design a city that was good for walkability where the the car had a restricted use just for people who needed it and shared vehicles pushed to the front of the queue as well.
1: That's really the way urbanism and policy has been going for quite some time now if we think just about the congestion charge that's been a, a fact of life for a long time in London now. The fact that all new housing in London nowadays if it's built close enough to a tube station or has a high enough level of accessibility, you're not allowed to apply for a car parking permit. I live in a building like that because the presumption is that we'll be cycling and we'll be walking. That's always a difficulty for planners and designers at any point in time in that you're designing for the scenario now and for the next five or ten years, but you're also having to really think about designing to try and engender change into what we know need to be the behaviours of the future. And there can sometimes be a tension in that. And a lot of the time, that really does revolve around car Cars and parking, it's very difficult to encourage not only residents, but political decision makers in the planning process, that we should be getting rid of cars out of the city. But we all know for our, our health and well-being in terms of air quality, our social integration in terms of the level of how much do we want to spend time with our, of our communities, and certainly for the environment in terms of fossil fuels and carbon, that that is the way certainly they're going. So being a city that has an urban grain or a scale that functions where people can walk from where they live to where they work or access shops in their local area without having to get into a car is very beneficial.
0: It's interesting how... I know that you, of course, reflect what's going on in society, but social change is really important for the kinds of things that work and don't work. And, and we're, you know, we all feel a little bit kind of, you know, clever now, looking back at the sixties and seventies and thinking what fools they were to believe that we'd be all pootling around in our cars and raised highways through the centre of all of our cities. Of course, it would come to a congestion point, but there are some other changes which I'm always, you, know, you see, the impact beginning. But I, I wonder sometimes whether big companies and commissioners of these projects are up to scratch which is the changing nature of work and how we we come together you still see across most cities huge office plots going up with massive footprints how we live together the need for more communal space more space where we come together for social interaction because we are being pushed into smaller and smaller apartments do you kind of if you were building a new city and in the work you do is there a kind of a, a whole kind of research team that brings to you like data about the nature of how we live and how it's changing
1: Absolutely. There's always forecasts and, you know, longer range views and theory and ideas from other cities. I think urbanists are very good at sharing and learning from different case studies and experience from around the world. And of course, there are very influential thinkers such as Jan Gale, who talk about the importance of public space that really influence our advice as strategic urbanism thinkers Our relationship with our clients and the real estate industry has to sort of deal with what the real estate see as the market wanting and us as urbanists wanting to propose in order that we try and influence in a way that those bigger shifts, those societal shifts, don't get lost in terms of only trying to meet what the market wants at the moment.
0: And finally and quickly, are you positive about the world of city building?
1: Very positive, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have to be, but do you feel we're, we've got our heads together about how you make new cities and that we're heading in the right direction?
1: I think so. I think progress sometimes feels frustratingly slow because city building is a very long term project and it's there's lots of inherent risks involved in it. But I think for a long time, there's been, you know, reports about technology means that we won't need to all be clustered in one place or we will start to live differently. But ultimately, we're all social animals and cities are places where we gather and meet one another. So the idea or the concept of a city is very old and is not going anywhere. We're just coming up with a new way of how to design it. And I feel very positive about that.
0: Well, that was the urbanist Fiona Sibley there from Building Design Partnership. And thank you to her for joining us on the show. So as you've heard, moving a city, and indeed a capital city, isn't an easy thing to do. Somehow the chaos and the grit and the dirt and the noise that you try to leave behind, you suddenly realise are kind of essential for making a place that's bustling, joyful, chaotic, and in which you can also just disappear into the crowds. Too many cities that move, especially new capital cities, end up being places of legislation, of apparatchiks, of civil servants coming together to do their thing. And that's why on Friday nights, the rush to the airport to get back to the old city is rather a large crowd trying to cram onto those planes. So I guess for Monocle, when we look at all of these stories... We think there's some caution to be considered. Go slowly and don't think you're going to get it right the first time. And also don't think it's a project that you can just do as a one-off. Like any city, it needs to evolve and change and get better and richer and more nuanced. And the only way to do that is, well, let go a little bit. Allow some of that chaos back in. So have a go, but don't expect everything to be right on the first day when you move in. Do you know what? That's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And we're going to play you out this week's episode with Curtis Mayfield and Move On Up. Thank you for listening, City Lovers.